The first four chapters deal with the division that was happening in the church because of their unhealthy views towards church leadership. Chapter 5 will deal with sexual sin in the church and how the church handles it. Chapter 6 will deal with lawsuits against other believers and more sexual sin. Chapter 7 will deal with matters of divorce and remarriage and singleness. Chapter 8 will deal with matters of Christian liberty. Just to give you a little roadmap as where Paul is going over the next several chapters. He dealt with the first issue quite extensively after the first four chapters, but now he will go in more rapid-fire succession dealing with different issues that exist in this Corinthian church, which we have said is a problem church. It's a problem church. But Paul continues to give gospel answers to these people. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says to them, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The word reported here is, again, something Paul has heard about these Corinthians. More than likely, it was the same people that told him about the division that he addressed in the first four chapters. And if you remember, in verse 111, he says that he heard from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe's people are, but they did. Chloe's people told us about that division. Probably Chloe's people told Paul about this issue as well. And, um, and the matter here is of sexual immorality that is among them. The word that is translated sexual immorality here is the Greek word, um, which is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. Porneia in the Greek covered a multitude of different sexual sins. It could refer to anything from prostitution to premarital sex, fornication, adultery, or even to the lust that proceeds from within a person's heart. And this is the sin that is being reported to Paul that is being there present in the Corinthian church, sexual immorality. And here you have people in the church that are doing this and approving of such things, and that's what we're going to see here. Here you have people in the church who are reportedly born-again believers in Jesus Christ. They have reportedly repented from their sins and their old lifestyles. But now presently, they are living in public sin in the community, and everybody knows about it. Here is this church that's supposed to be different, this church which is supposed to be holy, set apart, different, distinct, That's who believers are. We're a testimony to the world of the grace of God in our lives. Amen? But when Christians look no different from the world and how they live their lives and they live just like the world and unbelievers, there's a serious problem. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what Paul says. He says, this kind of sexual immorality that is present among you is a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. We have unbelievers that don't even think this is right to do. 
This is even taboo, even in a lost world. And here, you guys are doing it and approving of it. Wow. The word pagans there is literally the word Gentiles. Even the Gentiles don't even approve of this. And the Greco-Roman world in which Corinth was located was a very sexually promiscuous society. And they tolerated all sorts of sexual sin. But Paul says that this particular sin in the Corinthian church is not even something that the sexually promiscuous society even approves of. What are you doing, Corinthians? It is so bad that even unbelievers think it's wrong, but you guys don't? What makes it okay within God's church? And here, what is the sin that Paul is meaning? And he refers to it here. What is the sin? For a man has his father's wife. Now, apparently, there was a man, a member of the Corinthian church, that was having sexual relations with his stepmother. It was not his mother, for if it was, Paul would have said so. And he listed very specifically his father's wife. It's no relation to this man. But whether his father is alive or not, it doesn't matter. This is incest. This is incestual relations, and it is wrong. It is wicked. And Paul was right. It was not even tolerated in the Roman world. As a matter of fact, according to Roman law, this was against the law. And yet, in the Corinthian church, it was okay. It was okay for this man to have a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, we don't have to go into great detail to show you why this is evil. It says it in God's word, and I think naturally we would consider that to be uh, wrong as well. But in Leviticus 18, verse 7, God specifically names this as a sin when he gives the law to Moses. He says in verse 7, Leviticus 18, 7, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. God was so serious about this particular sin that it was even punishable in Old Testament Israel by death. In Leviticus 20, 11, this is what the word of God says. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. The law of God tells us what is right and wrong. It tells us what is sinful and righteous. It reveals to us the character and the nature of God. And this sexual sin is one that is wrong in God's law and even wrong according to the world of Corinth back in that day. And as bad and as wicked as this man is, and we're not told that this woman, his stepmother, was even a member of the church because she's not being called out here. Who is being called out is the person who does belong to the church, 
who apparently has a relationship with this woman. But as bad as that is, what is worse is the church's response to him. Look at verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you are arrogant, Paul says to them. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The church knew that this man was doing this and ignored it. They knew that he was sinning in such an evil and disgusting way, and their attitudes were such they approved it. And this is why Paul calls them arrogant. You know what God requires. You know what God has said. And yet you still let the sin go on and on. Now, why is this? It is more than likely that the Corinthians had a very low view of sin. I believe that they, there's a case to be made that they were very antinomian in their view of sin, which means against the law. The Corinthians were people who were saying, eh, we could sin any way we want because Jesus will forgive us anyway. The Corinthians lived in such a way where they were like, Jesus paid for all my sins, therefore I have a license to sin because he's already made justice for me. Now, why do you say that, Dan? Well, in the next chapter... Paul addresses something that they say to this effect. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, the very next chapter, Paul quotes them. You see the quotes around that beginning there. He's quoting what the Corinthians are saying. All things are lawful for me. He's quoting them. But Paul's saying, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. In the Corinthian church persisted this idea that they are not under the law, but by grace. And there's a part of that that is true, because we are not saved by keeping the law by our works. We are saved by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, who obeyed for us. Therefore, we're not underneath the requirements of the law for our justification, our salvation. But we are under the law according to our sanctification, how we're being made holy according to God. And so the Corinthians, I think, had this arrogant view. This is why Paul, I think, says, and you are arrogant. You are so messed up in how you see things that you can let this sin go undealt with, undealt with. And all of that sentiment is rooted in pride, wicked pride, evil pride. This is why they had this view. They could do whatever they wanted. So when it came to this man, they probably said, you're in Jesus, do what you want, man. We'll look the other way. No. A person who would say such things, that they could sin any way they want and they're forgiven and they're going to heaven, more than likely does not know Jesus. Because a true believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, will be convicted to turn from their sin and not to have liberty to continue in it. 
And this is what this man totally got wrong. This is what the Corinthian church got wrong. When I say that they were a problem church, it's probably putting it lightly, to say the least. It's a shame when the world has a higher view of sin than the church does. This is what was happening back in the Corinthian day. Their arrogance could be seen maybe as making such statements like this. Well, we know what he's doing is wrong, but, you know, who are we to judge? By the way, that's the most misquoted and misinterpreted verse in all the Bible. Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. But if you keep reading, he says, but when you judge, judge righteously. The context there is, don't look at the sins of everyone else and ignore your own. Call people out according to the truth, but make sure you are looking into your own life, unless you be a hypocrite. That's the, by the way, the lost person's favorite verse to quote. Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, keep reading and you'll see the true meaning of that text. Maybe the Corinthians were thinking that. And their arrogance could be seen in that. Well, who are we to judge? That let him, we'll just mind our own business and let him do his own thing. Maybe it's their arrogance is seen in them saying, well, we know it's wrong, but uh, to confront him, to confront them about this would be very awkward. It'd be a very awkward conversation. So, you know, I'm just going to turn my head and just pretend it's not happening. Their arrogance could be probably seen when they're saying, it's all grace. It's all grace. Now, this is why Paul says and scolds them. And you are arrogant, full with pride, misunderstanding God's law. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? You ought to mourn. You ought to grieve. This is what this word mourn means, to grieve. You should be in great sorrow that this man who names the name of Christ, who says he's a Christian, is living in such a way. Not gloating in your arrogance over your supposed freedom. When a believer is living in unrepentant sin, it should cause us great grief and sadness and sorrow. And I think what Paul says to them next shocks them. The last sentence of that verse, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Here Paul is calling for the excommunication or the removal of this man's relationship with the church. Doesn't that sound a little harsh, Dan? No, not at all. And we'll see in a minute that it is actually the most loving thing they can do. And this is what we call today church discipline. What is church discipline? Church discipline is the responsibility given to the church to hold those who profess the name of Christ accountable. Why is this so important? Let me explain. When you become a member of a church, you are saying, I am a Christian. And when the church welcomes you in, they agree with you. And by agreeing with you, they affirm your faith. They baptize you. They serve you the Lord's Supper. 
and they hold you accountable as the Lord commands us in his word. And there are many marks of true, genuine, saving faith in a believer. But the one that is most obvious of all is repentance. A Christian is not someone who doesn't sin. A Christian is someone who repents when they do. And that is the issue here in Corinth. When someone says they are a Christian and then repeatedly and willfully sins and then refuses to repent of that sin in their life and makes it a habitual pattern in their life, they are showing that they are not truly a Christian. Not that they have lost their salvation because that's impossible. If you have been truly, genuinely saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But there are many false converts. There are many people who said the prayer. There are many people who raised their hands. There are many people who said, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And their lives have never made any change whatsoever. There's been no fruit of their salvation. There's been no evidence that they truly are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have joy from God, hunger for his word, and a desire to live a holy life. So when this man repeatedly and continually is sleeping with his stepmother, When God has said that that is sinful, and even the world says it's inappropriate, and there is no response to him from saying, you know, I ought not to do this. Let me turn from this. That is the huge issue here. This is why Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from you. Because what he is telling you is that he is not truly a Christian. He is not truly born again. And you have to take his life as as the word for it. If someone refuses to repent of their sin, they show no regard for the death of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the work of the Spirit in their heart. In fact, in this case, this man's sin was so serious, there was no going to him to confront him. It was just kick him out. Because his sin is so public and heinous and disgusting to the name of Christ and to the church and the glory of God in Corinth, make a statement to the community, this guy does not belong to us. Because he is not living like his Savior has commanded him to live. That sounds harsh, that sounds unloving, that sounds ungracious. But like I said, it is the most loving thing a church can do. And let me say that any church who refuses to to place unrepentant members under church discipline shows that they are not truly a church. Because the church's job is to affirm people's faith, to shepherd them and guide them and edify them and walk through them with them in their sanctification. I'm going to show you that in a second, how the Lord Jesus has given us that responsibility. And to let someone keep on sinning, even though they, even though they name the name of Christ and they refuse to repent, is essentially tell them, go straight to hell. Because by their lifestyle, they're telling you they're not a Christian. And without you confronting them, and with you continuing to confirm them in their faith, you're essentially telling them, We're going to let you go to hell without saying anything to you. That's the most hateful thing you can do to somebody. 
So this is what Paul was saying. This was a bad, bad guy. Look at verse 3. For though absent in body, Paul says, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul is saying here, I'm not there right now to pronounce judgment on this man, but I don't have to be. I am with you in spirit. I think what Paul means there is this letter is evidence of how I feel about this and what you ought to do. Take this letter as authority for as a command of what the church needs to do and to take action. All right, Paul, so what do we do? How are we to remove this man? Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and the power of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. When you gather together as a church, you do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. You are saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king over these people. He's a savior of these people. When you gather together in the name of the Lord. Notice, Paul puts the weight of church discipline not just on the elders of the church or the deacons of the church. When you are assembled together, he puts it on the gathering of the local church to pronounce judgment, to say, We love this person too much to let them keep thinking they are a Christian by their willful unrepentance. With the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Wow, that is strong language from Paul. With the authority given to you, the church, by Christ, you are to make a judgment. And what is the judgment? Deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? I mean, Paul's not saying, put the man in the car and drive him to hell, okay? That's not what he's saying. Essentially, what he's saying is this. Since this man is living like he's an unbeliever, treat him like an unbeliever. Like church membership affirms someone's faith, church discipline says, we no longer agree with you that your faith is genuine and real. So we can no longer affirm your faith. So we're going to deliver you over to Satan, or we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. Church discipline states we can no longer affirm your faith because of your lack of repentance of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we can't treat you as a Christian anymore. We can't serve you the Lord's Supper anymore. You say you're a Christian, but based on your life, we don't agree. And what is the purpose of removing this man? Like, what is the purpose of church discipline? Is it to punish him? Is it to say, ah, there you go, buddy. We got you now. You deserve this. Not at all. Remember, Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? Not to take a victory lap. This is a painful and sorrowful decision that a church has to make, but they do it for the glory of God. Church discipline is not for punishment. It's not for when someone messes up. 
Let's punish him for sinning. If that were the case, there'd be nobody left in this church. Are we preaching now? Including this guy. Church discipline is not for when someone sins. Again, church disciplines is when someone refuses to repent of their sin. And there are some sins that are so public and so heinous that they require the immediate removal of that individual, like what happens here in Corinth. Now, who gives the church this responsibility? The Lord Jesus does. The Lord Jesus does. Jesus talked about this very thing in first, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 18. Turn there with me, if you would. Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Amen. If someone has sinned, especially against you, confront him and say, hey, you have sinned against me. And we're to call that person to repentance. If he does not listen, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if he refuses to listen to them, meaning the witnesses, what does Jesus say? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, and his unrepentance continues, what does Jesus say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is Jesus' way of saying, deliver him over to Satan. Treat him as an unbeliever. How did the Jews feel about the Gentiles, about the tax collectors? They were not believers of the God of Israel. This is what Paul, where did Paul get this from? Paul's not making this up. Paul gets it from instruction of the Lord Jesus as found in Matthew 18. And if you keep reading, this is interesting. Because again, the authority to level church discipline, again, is not solely on the elders. But the church, if, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That he may still be a genuine Christian, but let him be to you. You treat him as if he weren't. And hopefully, through this measure, we will know for sure if he is or not. But look what he says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is another misquoted verse of the New Testament. I'm sorry to break it to you, but this has nothing to do with two or three Christians gathering together for a cup of coffee, and we can say Jesus is with us. I mean, that is true. Jesus is with us, especially when we drink coffee. Amen? All right. 
But the context of what Jesus says here is very specific. And what is the context? Church discipline. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of him. What is Jesus saying? I am giving the authority to my church to pronounce judgment on a person, a brother, who does not repent of their sin, therefore proving that they're not a brother. They're not truly a brother. So, when you quote that verse, two or three gathered in my name, talk about church discipline. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's getting this based on the authority of Jesus. So, here Paul, again, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, verse 4. Again, he's going to the authority of the church, like Jesus says in Matthew 18. Now, what's the purpose, Paul? Like, are we just going to, are we going to out to get them? Are we going to punish them real good? No. What's the purpose? For, deliver them over to Satan. Why? For, verse 5, the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is the purpose of church discipline? It's not to embarrass anybody. It's not to make them feel shame for their sin. The purpose of church discipline is for the care of their soul. And I'm sorry, I'd rather hurt your feelings than take a chance of you burning in hell. And that's the product of a sensitive, political, correct culture, isn't it? We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings anymore. Listen, we are commanded to speak the truth in love. And if that hurts someone's feelings, so be it. If the truth offends you, let the truth be offensive. I'm not going to be trying to be offensive myself. Nor should you do. Be, seek to be offensive. Let the truth offend. The purpose of church discipline is for the person's salvation. For when the church says, we're delivering you over to Satan, we're going to treat you like an unbeliever because that's how you're living, we are sending a message to that person, hey, you better look at your heart because you think you're going to heaven, but we don't think you are. The destruction of the flesh, I believe, means the carnality. The flesh usually refers to the sinful nature of the person, that his flesh might be destroyed. It could refer to a judgment from God. That's very possible as well. But I think it more than likely refers to um, the sinful nature and our evil intentions that is causing the person to sin in that way. The goal here is through the removal of the person or delivering them over to Satan, treating them like an unbeliever, is to serve as a wake-up call to that person and we pray that, A, this person will understand that they have greatly wronged God and that they have fallen into sin. And we pray that they will now renew their repentance, proving that they are indeed a Christian. That's what we want. When someone is placed under church discipline, it's saying, we love you too much to keep you living that way, thinking you're going to heaven. 
So we're sending you a message, a powerful message, by the authority of the Lord and by the authority given to the church where two or three are gathered in my name to tell you that we love you too much to let you keep living that way. So please, repent of your sins. And if you are saved, then prove it by running from your sin to Christ, for he will forgive you. And if we're right that you are not a Christian at all, then we pray that you will be saved, gloriously saved for the first time. That's the purpose of church discipline. So that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's to ensure that this person's salvation is legitimate. Remember, what is church membership? We affirm your faith. I mean, church membership is we affirm your faith. Church discipline is we can no longer affirm your faith. But when, we can, when you repent and show the fruits of your repentance, then we'll say, okay, now we can affirm your faith again. That's the point. And church discipline is awkward. It is sad. It is disappointing. But it is absolutely necessary. If we're to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, if we're going to love, truly love one another, Church discipline is ultimately for the love of the individual and the state of their soul. And there are many examples throughout the scriptures. A church that refuses to discipline its members, unrepentant members, is a hateful church. As parents who refuse to discipline their children. This is what Proverbs 13.24 says. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And God himself is a God of discipline. God disciplines his church. God disciplines believers. We told, we're told this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5, they're addressed. And the message is this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews is saying, when you do receive the discipline from God in your daily life, which we've all been there, when we do receive discipline, that is served as confirmation of our faith. Because if the Lord didn't love us, if we didn't belong to him, he would just let us do what we want and let our souls be destroyed. By no discipline, we're proving we're illegitimate children and not his true sons. Again, this is why church discipline matters. For without discipline, we truly know who are the sons of God and who aren't, who are the children of God. Paul encourages the Galatians in the same way. In Galatians 6.1, he says to the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be interpret, be tempted. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy what he had to do to two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he had to put under discipline. And 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20 says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, what? Faith and a good conscience and the prophecies. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here's Paul practicing church discipline, and he gives Timothy an example of it. Timothy, you stay faithful. Fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. Hold the faith. Some have rejected the faith. And by rejecting the faith, by rejecting God's word, what have they done? They have shipwrecked their faith. And they have blasphemed God. And he, gives, and he calls them out by name. Here's two guys. You remember Hymenaeus and Alexander? I have delivered them over to Satan. That's, true. That's what he tells the Corinthians to do with this man sleeping with his stepmother. I have handed them over to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. Why? Paul cares for them. Don't you know if you continue to be a blasphemer, you are headed for hell? I'm putting you under discipline because I love you and I want to see your soul saved. 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about the discipline of elders and pastors. Elders and pastors are not above discipline either. Elders and pastors also fall into sin. And they also need to be put under discipline. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, what is that, unrepentance? Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Whoa. Yeah, elders who... Persist in sin. Elders, pastors who continue to sin and refuse to repent are to be made a public example so that the rest of the church would fear God. And then Paul tells Titus in chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So here in Titus, there are people who are causing controversy and division and arguing about all of these other little things about the law that don't matter in the grand scheme of things and dividing people like the Corinthians were doing over Paul and Apollos. He says, after warning him once, that's following Jesus' pattern. If your brother has sinned against you, go to him. And then twice, take a witness with you. After that, have nothing to do with him. What does that mean? 
Treat them like an unbeliever. Again, church discipline is biblical. And would you know, would you know that very, very few churches practice it? And we wonder why the church, generally speaking, is the way it is? It's because its membership roles are filled with unconverted people. And that churches and pastors are too embarrassed and shameful to do what is right for the sake of their soul and the glory of God. And for a church to do that is to fall into the arrogance of the Corinthians. This is why Paul says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let this man be removed from among you. Brothers and sisters, we have a high calling to live a holy life in Jesus Christ. And as a child grows up in the house of his parents and is disciplined properly in love and nurture and admonition and instruction of the Lord, and they feel the love of their parents, so we should also feel the love of the Lord. May we continually have repentance in our lives. When we sin, let us run to Christ, for he is a great Savior. We have a great gospel which gives us unbelievable freedom and pardon of sin for everything we've ever done. There is hope in Jesus Christ. But God loves you too much. God loves you far too much to let you keep thinking you're going to heaven when you're not. And that is what church discipline is all about. And we've had to do church discipline in this church in the past year, and it was awkward and difficult, and we're still praying for the person's repentance. But when it is necessary, we do so in accordance with the Scripture and underneath the authority of the Lord Jesus for the love of that person. This is a charge that we have, that we will have to give an account before God of how we shepherded each other and loved each other and called one another and Encourage one another to be holy. This is why we have a time of confession of sin in our service that Jeff left, led us so beautifully earlier, reminding us of the gospel. This is a gift to us given on the Lord's day. Here we are gathered together and we're reminded of this beautiful truth that we are, we are sinners, but we have a great God who has saved us. We need not continue in sin. We need to run to the Savior. And so I encourage you, I implore you. In this case, the sin was sexual in nature. In other cases, it was blasphemy. In other cases, it was division. There's other things that were biblical examples. May you examine your life. May you know the gospel. And may you know you have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. And when a brother or sister comes to you and confronts you in your sin lovingly, may you not be defensive May you not be, um, mind your own business, but may you see the love of that person in accordance with the scriptures. And may they come to you with the truth and love and grace and, they, and know that they are concerned for your soul because this is what the Lord has called us to do. Hmm. May we do so with boldness and with great guidance from God in this very difficult 
topic. Because you know why? The body of Christ matters. Jesus is worthy of a spotless and pure bride, which he has purchased with his own blood. Let's be the people of God, confess our sins, repent, and live in the glory of the gospel every day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on church discipline. God, we're so grateful for instruction on these difficult matters, as awkward and as confusing as it might be at times. God, may you give us patience and guidance with each other. We don't want to punish anybody. We don't want to be spiritual policemen. But Lord, when necessary and concerned for someone's soul, when they refuse to repent, may we lovingly, graciously lead them back to the Savior. Lord, I pray for people in this room who may be on the verge of that in their own hearts. They're living in sin and loving it. There might be people in this room who think they're a believer and are not. Let them examine their hearts and search for fruits of repentance. And if they have not repented, God, I pray that they would find true freedom in you for the first time. For those who are in this room who are genuinely saved but have slipped and have backslidden in a state to wound their conscience and they're in a position to sin in this way, may you fill them with the fear of God so that they may know that their souls are secure and that they are genuinely and truly saved. Renew the repentance in them. Create a hunger and a desire for God. Create in us a hatred and a desire to run away from our sin. Lord, we love our sin. That's the problem. And there's no one, there's no one immune from our sin. But we don't have to be beholden to it. Sin does not have dominion over us. We have been raised as new creatures in Jesus Christ. We battle this flesh every day, but God, may you give us the victory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, for your glory. And help us to love one another truly in holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing hymn together. Thank you so much for joining us today. If we could help you in any way, please see me after the service. We love you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon.